from him to her father's house in Bethlehem in Judah and was there for some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys. And she brought him into her house, father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay, and he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. And on the fourth day, they rose early in the morning, and he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread, and after that you may go. So the two of them sat and ate and drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, Be pleased to spend the night and let your heart be merry. And when the man rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him till he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day he rose early in the morning to depart, and the girl's father said, Strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. So they ate, both of them. And when the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the day has waned toward evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here and let your heart be merry, and tomorrow you shall rise early in the morning for your journey and go home. But the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jebus, that is Jerusalem. He had with him a couple of saddled donkeys and his concubine was with him. When they were near Jebus, the day was nearly over and the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to the city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. And he said to his young man, Come and let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Gibeah or at Ramah. So they passed on and went their way. And the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjamites. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, Where are you going and where do you come from? And he said to him, We are passing from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim from which I come. I went to Bethlehem in Judah and I'm going to the house of the Lord, but no one has taken me into his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys, bread and wine for me and my, your female servant and the young man with your servants. There's no lack of anything. And the old man said, Peace be to you. I will call for your, all your wants. I'll, I'll care for all of your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into his house and gave the donkeys feed. And they washed their feet and ate and drank. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, Bring out the man who came into your house, that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly, since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the man would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. 
Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her, divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces, and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, Such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. Amen. I know that this is a gruesome story, but we still deal with it because the Bible addresses the reality of our sinfulness, and so we do not shy away from it. You know what's going on in our nation? A lot of talk and actions about racism. What is racism? It is prejudice, discrimination, or antagonism directed against a person or people on the basis of their racial or ethnic group, rather than on the content of one's character as distinct individuals. But I think racism can be further divided into two categories. Racism as a vice and racism as a fact. Racism as a vice is something that is directed to minorities by the majority. And this is how a lot of people think that the majority can, uh, only the majority can be racist and minorities cannot be. And in that sense, it's kind of true as a vice. Only the majority people can do some harm to the minorities by their racist attitudes. But there is also racism of different kind of racism. Racism as a fact. And it is something that all of us are guilty of, regardless of our status as majority or minority. So any minority group can commit the same vice if they become the majority. One of the reasons that racism is so wrong is that we are not all that different from one another, especially in this sense. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We see an instance of this in today's passage. A new Sodom in Israel. So in this message, we will see how Gibeah became Israel's new Sodom. We will also see how all the characters in the story did what was evil in the sight of God by doing what is right in their own eyes. Then we will see what kind of savior Jesus was to bring redemption to the fallen humanity. Notice how the story begins in those days when there was no king in Israel. This is a shortened version of a more complete version that is found at the very end of the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Verse 1 signals that something terrible is going to happen, and it does. Gibeah becomes Israel's Sodom. The parallels between what happened to Sodom and Genesis in Genesis 19 and this story 
are too obvious to ignore. In both stories, strangers come into these cities. They don't find lodging with the residents of those cities, but by those who move there from outside. At night, the men of both cities come and demand the male travelers that they might know him, know them, that is to physically and sexually abuse them. The host plead them not to do this wicked thing, and they both offer their virgin daughters and the Levite's concubine in the place of the man. The only difference is that the angel struck the mob with blindness and rescued Lot and his family from Sodom before God rained on that city his judgment. Tragically, in today's passage, the concubine is pushed out to the mob and abused by the mob all night long, and she dies as a result. George M. Schwab points out another parallel. He commanded her, her lifeless body, arise, let us go. This echoes the angel's call to Lot's family in Sodom in Genesis 19.14. When she failed to respond, he tossed her onto the back of a donkey and went home. That such a thing should happen in Israel at the hands of God's chosen people is unthinkable and horrifying beyond measure. But that was not the only thing. The Levite and his companions could not find lodging for a long time, verse 15. This is like someone visiting a church and having nobody come talk to them or even welcome them or acknowledge him. That would be horrible. A church is a place of love and acceptance and care. You see, hospitality was a very important aspect of the ancient Near Eastern culture of which Israel was a part. With a glimpse of this, in the generous hospitality of Levite's father-in-law, it is true that he entertained his father-in-law, not a stranger, but this was all part of the hospitality culture of that time and region. Think of Abraham and Lot, who welcomed even strangers who happened to be angels and urged them to stay longer so they could properly entertain them with their generosity. But no such welcome was offered to the Levite by the people of Gibeah. The only offer came from an old man who was from the hill country of Ephraim, not from Gibeah, which was in Benjamin. Was this because the Levite came to the town so late that nobody noticed that he came? But if that is the case, how could they gather and surround the old man's house late at night and ask for the Levite? It seems like what happened is that the general morality of the town de degenerated so much that there was no longer any spirit of hospitality in that town. And this becomes even more poignant when we consider how the Levite ended up in Gibeah. His servants suggested that they lodge at Jebus, which would later be called Jerusalem. But the Levite replied, we will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. This makes a perfect sense. Jebus was still occupied by foreigners at that time, verse 12, when Phinehas, Aaron's grandson, was the high priest. His father, Eliezer, ministered during the time of Joshua. 
So Phinehas, who took over the office from Eliezer, ministered when the tribes were conquering the territories that were allotted to them, which is the beginning of the book of Judges. Both Judah and Benjamin could not take the town of Jebus. Jebus and Israel were still technically at war. So the Levites' choice was not a racist choice. It was a reasonable choice not to stay at Jebus with foreigners who were their enemies, but at Gibeah with his countrymen. This perfectly common sense, rational decision backfired in an unthinkable way. Why? You see, the Levite lived at a time when common sense and logic did not work because there was no king in the land and everybody did what was right in his own eyes. As the events unfold, we cannot help but wonder if he and his companion would have been safer in Jebus with foreigners than in Gibeah with his countrymen. You see, what happened in Gibeah was not as bad as what happened in Sodom. It was worse. In Sodom, the mob's evil intention was not carried out. Granted that if they had their way, they would have done what they wanted to do. But in Gibeah, the mob carried out the heinous deeds to its ghastly end. And these were supposed to be God's people. And let's not forget what they wanted to do originally. Not just abuse this woman, but to abuse the Levite as men. It is remarkable how quickly the people of Benjamin slid down into unthinkable evil. This calls us to be humble and sober-minded. The Israelites could not have been unaware of what happened to Sodom. How wicked and evil that city was. How vile was what the men tried to do to the angelic visitors. And how devastating God's judgment was on that wicked city. Who would have thought that what happened in that city of Sodom, the symbol of wickedness and evil, could happen in a city in Israel? And that only a generation or two after triumphantly conquering the promised land. And as Sodom was destroyed, Gibeah too would be destroyed at the sword of their countrymen. You see, the problem with the Sodomites was not their ethnicity or skin color or environment. It was their sinful heart. And we see that this problem transcends all the superficial differences we have with one another. You see, Sodom can be anywhere, exist among any group of people, even in a church, though with different kinds of sins. Because the true Sodom is in our hearts, in our sinfulness. But the people of Gibeah were not the only example of everyone doing what was right in his own eyes. What about the old man? He did right in providing lodging for the Levite. But what about his response to the mob when they demanded the Levite? He rightly urged them not to do the wicked and vile thing they intended to, to do, do with him, verse 23. But he also said to the mob, 
Behold here my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. What was he thinking? It's hard for us to understand what this man is trying to do. Why he's doing this. Did not his virgin daughter look to him for protection? Was the concubine not his guest as much as the Levite was? If you recall, Lot did something similar for the two angels, offering his virgin daughters instead of these angels. Without a doubt, this is hospitality gone awry. Their culture valued hospitality. Those who stayed with them were under their protection. But so were their daughters and their concubines. It is clear that Lot's and the old man's was a discriminatory and convoluted version of hospitality. So wrong, so perverse. Maybe this was because they valued their honor as a good host than their duty to their own family members, their daughter, their concubine. And we have to say the same thing about the concubine's father's hospitality. His, father, his father-in-law seems like a paragon of hospitality. But there are hints that his hospitality went overboard as well. Our passage suggests that three days of stay might have been the norm for hospitality. So the first three days were treated as one unit of time in verse 4. But the father-in-law did not stop there. He kept on asking his son-in-law to stay another day again and again. Maybe he really liked his son-in-law, even though he made his daughter only a concubine. Or maybe he was sad to send away his daughter. Or he simply enjoyed parting. Schwab suggests that he wanted his son-in-law to stay because he was his drinking buddy. Verse 4, so they ate and drank and spent the night there for three days. Verse 6, so the two of them sat and ate and drank together. And we hear him say to his son-in-law twice in his urging to stay one more night, let your heart be merry, which most likely involved drinking. And we know that he repeated Requests to stay longer led to the Levites' late departure, which led to the horrific events in Gibeah. What about the Levite? He too was far from being guiltless. His name is not given, but we are quickly told that he took a concubine from Bethlehem of Judah. A concubine is someone a man gets in addition to his wife. Men at that time, especially those who had money and power, had many wives and concubines. Gideon, one of the judges, had many wives and a concubine, the mother of Abimelech, who killed all of his half-brothers, 68 of them. Just because the practice of having concubines was common doesn't mean that it was good or right. It was wrong for Gideon to have a concubine, and it was wrong for a Levite to have a concubine, even more so because he was set apart unto God to serve in the holy sanctuary, assisting the priests. 
God designed marriage to be between one man and one woman. The reason is because the conjugal intimacy both in bed and life should be so special that it can be shared exclusively between one man and one woman only and only within a proper marriage. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Genesis 2.24 Marriage is one of those areas in life where the principle of the more the merrier does not work. Today's passage is another example of man's failed attempt at happiness against God's design. While having a wife with whom he should be one body, the Levite got a concubine. And we are told that she was unfaithful to him and left him to go to her father's house. Rather than bringing happiness, this arrangement caused a headache for him and a heartache for the concubine. We should not do something bad and expect something good to come out of it. But why did they separate? Was it because she was unfaithful to him? If you have a study Bible, there will be a footnote for unfaithful to him, which gives you another translation option, became angry with. These two options are there because there are two options for the root of the Hebrew word. But it seems that she became angry with him is a better translation. As Shua points out, but if she whored against him, why would she run to her father? He should be the one to cast her out of there instead of she leaving him. We don't know why she got angry, whose fault it was. But after four months, the Levite finally reached out to her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. But this is what Schwab observes. This sounds sensitive, does it not? As sensitive as the prince of Shechem who spoke to Dinah's heart kindly after raping her. It's not necessarily a good thing. And who was the man? that seized her and handed her over to the wicked mob in verse 25. It was not the old man who proposed that idea. The Hebrew word used there is not Adam, which refers to man in general, but Ish, which is also used for husband. You see, it was the Levite who thrusted his own concubine to the mad mob to be violated all night, which ended up killing her. And while this was going on, what did he do? Verse 27 says, And her master rose up in the morning. It seems like he went to bed. And upon seeing her ravaged corpse at the door, he said, sounding rather annoyed, Get up! Let us be going! As if it was her fault that she died in that terrible, tragic way. And when he got home, he seized her body and chopped it into 12 pieces as he seized her and pushed her out to the mob. And this man belonged to the priestly tribe of Levi, set apart to serve the Lord at his holy sanctuary. 
It was not just the 12 tribes of Israel. It was not just the judges. Even the Levites were doing what was right in their own eyes. To think that the Levite taking on a concubine and their small domestic squabble led to a national crisis in which an entire tribe was almost exterminated, chapter 20. This is a stern warning against taking sins lightly, even small sins. Does that mean every small sin leads to a national crisis? No. But this passage tells us that it can, if it were not for God's mercy on us. But you see, when a society is corrupt, anything can ignite to blow up that society. Think about what is happening in our country because of the George Floyd incident. It's not a small incident for sure. A life was lost in a terrible way. But because of the volatility of our society and the degenerate morality of everyone doing what is right in his own eyes, it triggered not only peaceful protests, but also violent riots and looting throughout the country for more than three months. In this story, nobody does what is right. From everything that the Levite did, it is obvious that he got a concubine for his carnal pleasure, not for love. If he loved her, he would not have made her only a concubine. If he loved her, it would not have taken him four months to reach out to her. And if he loved her, he would not have sacrificed her for his safety. What about the girl's father? He may have been a good host, but was he a good dad? At that time, his daughter was under his protection and guardianship. She could not have become a concubine without his consent or arrangement. Was he offered a lot of money by the Levite? What about the old man? He offered the Levite lodging when nobody in Gibeah did, but he also offered his virgin daughter and the Levite's concubine to be violated and abused by the mob. Did he value his duty as a host, in other words, his honor more than his own daughter? And what more do we need to say about the men of Gibeah who acted worse than the men of Sodom even though they were God's chosen people? Ironically, the girl who was abandoned by her father, used and betrayed by her husband, and senselessly ravaged by the mob, seems least blameworthy. How thankful we should be that we have a Savior who does all things right and well to perfection. Our Lord Jesus delivered Israel when she was a slave in Egypt. Though she had nothing to offer, though she was sinful, he entered into covenant with her and made her his bride to present her to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. He blessed her richly, providing, her, providing for her during her wilderness journey with many signs and wonders and bringing her into a land flowing with milk and honey, giving her the promise of his presence 
and help in times of trouble. But she acted treacherously, chasing after other worldly gods, committing spiritual adultery. Yet the Lord reached out to her again and again, calling her to repentance. And in the end, he came into this world to redeem her, all the elect people of God, by sacrificing himself, not the other way around like the Levite. Instead of sacrificing his concubine like the Levite did, Jesus delivered himself over to the mob. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Jesus was the true and perfect husband for his sinful, wayward bride. Jesus is also a perfect host. He extends his invitation to all those who seek refuge during their strenuous journey of life. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. He welcomes all those who respond to that invitation by faith. Anyone who comes to him, he will not reject. And you will find rest and nourishment to refresh and to renew you. And if you find refuge in him, he will never cast you out or surrender you to the forces of evil. He who even lay down his life for you will never give you up. But he will not detain you against your will. In fact, it is he who wants to send, out, uh, send us out into the world as the salt and light of the world so we can fulfill our mission. But he knows all the dangers out there in the world. So he doesn't send us out without equipping us with the full armor of God. What is more, even when we leave, we are never alone because he's with us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Our refuge is in Christ and he will never leave us or forsaken us. Forsake us. Brothers and sisters, we have been delivered out of Sodom into the holy city, the new Jerusalem. But we all know that the seed of Sodom is still in us until it will be totally eradicated when we are with God in heaven. So then until we enter into that glorious kingdom of God, let us humble ourselves before God. Let us strive to know God's word so we know what is right in his eyes. And let us not think that we know God's word unless we believe and live according to his word, not according to what is right in our own eyes. This is a blessing because we have this assurance from our faithful, good, and gracious God 
trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight all the way to that glorious heavenly home in which we will enjoy God's eternal and abundant love and joy and peace forevermore. Trust in the Lord. Know the Lord that you trust by abiding in the Word of God. Know Him well and love Him and trust in Him. He will give you your strength. He will be your joy. He will be your strength. He will be your life. Let us pray together. O oh Lord our God, we give you thanks and praise for Jesus Christ. Sometimes we look at our lives and sometimes it feels like we cannot do anything right. And oftentimes, Lord, we experience the terrible consequences of our mistakes, of our decisions, of our sinful acts. But we thank you for Christ, our Savior, our substitute, our representative, who did all things well. And thank you, Lord, that our life is found in him. And with him, we receive all the benefits and blessings of his righteousness. Lord, we thank you that you have delivered us from the Sodom of this world into that new Jerusalem. Help us, Lord, to live as those who belong to that holy and glorious city. Lord, we confess that so many things that we do and think are according to our own ideas, not according to what is right in your eyes. So grow us, increase our knowledge and faith in Jesus Christ, in your word, so that we may do what is right in your eyes. And we pray for our country that you will deliver this nation from its perverse ways. Help your people to be those ten righteous. And help us, Lord, to be the example of what the, all the beauty and glory of your design for humanity in our marriages, in our parenting, and in our fellowship with one another in this community. We thank you again for your grace and mercy, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.